0: What's happened over the course of the past couple of years is it's been an acceleration of a set of trends. The advent of broadband access at home, SaaS tools that are very easy for people to use and demographic changes, importantly, means that you've all of a sudden open yourself up to new ways of working. And what happened at the start of all of this is companies went one of two directions. A lot of us just did a retrofit. A lot of this was a lift and shift of existing habits and practices that you did in offices and you started doing them at home. Even that was a relatively major event, right? When you think about it, Um, everybody did, uh, made changes that they didn't think were possible. The question now is you've had other companies that have gone further and said, hey, look, we're going to take this opportunity to not just retrofit, but redesign. We're going to start rethinking, Mm -hmm. for example, how we do onboarding, how we do innovation, how we do creativity, all these other activities that have to happen in order to engineer the business. Right now, the question for a lot of leaders is which direction are you headed? Are you going to take the, the perspective of I'm going back to the way things always worked to uh, 2019 and before, um, because that's what always worked for me, or am I going to look at this and say I actually want to reimagine how work is done?
1: Welcome to the World Class Leaders Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers professionals who want to become world-class leaders in this podcast we deconstruct the success of high-performance leaders share their stories and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatest this is your host andrea petroni a high performance and leadership advisor executive coach and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leaders Show. And I'm excited because uh, in today's episode, I'm going to repurpose an amazing conversation that I had on LinkedIn with Brian Elliott. Brian is the executive leader of Future Forum, and he has spent three decades leading teams and building companies as a startup CEO, as a product leader at Google, and now at Slack where he is the senior vice president. And uh, we spoke about how the future works. And the reason being because Brian has just written an amazing book called How the Future Works, leading flexible teams to do the best work of their lives. And he has written a book with Sheila Subramanian and Helen Cup in Slack. So I really want you to listen this episode because Brian and I had an incredible conversation about the future of work, how leading teams, organizations online, what really means flexibility, what are the potential challenges, but also the incredible opportunities for organizations to embrace a different way of working. So put your seatbelt and enjoy this amazing conversation. So, Brian, would you like to tell us a bit more about who you are and why you have decided to write this amazing books, How the Future Works, and we can see the book on your back. And the conversation of today, it's really about what the future looks like in terms of work. And we're going to tr- go through the structure of the book. But before going into that, Brian, tell us a bit more your story and why you have decided to write this book.
0: Sure. So the book, How the Future Works, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work Their Lives, is written by me, along with my co-founders in Future Forum, Helen Cup and Sheila Subramanian. Uh, The three of us have been at this for the past couple of years, and we've done a couple of things. One, Future Forum is is a consortium. It's backed by Slack, along with our partners at Boston Consulting Group, Miller Knoll, and Management Leadership for Tomorrow. One of the things that we do is research. So for the last two years, every quarter, we release a survey called Future Forum Pulse. It's a survey of over 10,000 knowledge workers around the globe. Uh, North America, Europe, Asia, that gets into what's working and what's not and for whom uh, as people have gone both through the pandemic and either returned to offices, stayed remote, tried to figure out this hybrid world that we're all living in. The other thing that we do is uh, executive discussions. We actually gather groups of executives in small forums to discuss what's working, what's not, the challenges that they're facing both organizationally and personally in doing it. And what we found in doing this work was that That research is great, but we can really get it into a much more interesting place by thinking about what are some of the best practices, the case studies that we've seen from companies and organizations from across a range of industries, not just tech companies like Slack, but organizations and companies like Levi Strauss and Company, Genentech, which is a uh, a biotech firm, uh, Royal Bank of Canada, um, uh, a range of others that we profile throughout the course of the book. And so that's the book then gets into that. Uh, myself, I've gotten into this because, you know, I've I've been leading teams and organizations. I've been startup CEO, I've been at Google, I've been at Slack. And, you know, I learned often the hard way uh, that that phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast, is, is definitely true. And what the last two years have given us is this massive opportunity to sort of redesign how work gets done to make it better for people and for organizations. And it's a really great time to be thinking about um, how do we rebuild work in ways that are actually much more inclusive, uh, flexible, and connected?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's amazing, because that leads me exactly to the first question I have for you, Brian, because you, you start the book, actually, describing what flexibility means. Because flexibility, you know, if we look at the introduction of your book, says, you know, it's not just you know, working from home when you want, but also is how you want. So it's not about the location, but it's also the how and the when. So how would you describe flexibility in 2022?
0: Sure. So, so much of the conversation does get fixated on how many days a week is somebody going to be allowed to, to work from home. There's actually this uh, other factor that's actually even more important, which is uh, schedule flexibility. So in our research, as we've done this every quarter, what we've seen over the past two years is that people's expectations around flexibility have changed. They've spent the last two years proving that they can be productive working from home, but they want to come together with their teams as well, right? So from a location flexibility perspective, it's not about the top-down mandate that works, it's actually about how do you enable teams to figure out what the right periodicity is for them to come together? How do you allow people to come together with purpose, to build social connection, which is what people want even more than they want from a collaboration perspective? But flexibility is way more than that. It turns out that schedule flexibility The ability to not have your nine to five day jam packed full of meetings, shoving, you know, your individual work into the evening hours is actually even more important. Uh, 79% of people want location flexibility. 94% of people want schedule flexibility. If you can Hmm. find a way to break with that sort of nine to five game of Tetris where you're trying to find an hour to get work done, if we can break those habits, it has an even bigger impact on people's stress levels improves their work-life balance and their productivity in ways that are really material. So as we think about flexibility, we really need to kind of find a way to get past the headline issues of days a week and think a lot harder about how we use our time together.
1: And, and as you know, in Europe, a few countries has already embraced a different way of working in that perspective. So which is a limitation, as you just described, because they already decided to go to four days per week, for example. So Portugal was an example. Iceland is an example. And I still believe that is going to happen something as well in other countries in Europe. Do you see this as well as something is going to change, too, although it's, it's not going to have the impact that you just described, even in, in the U.S., for example?
0: So the the four-day-a-week model is really interesting, and it's got some real challenges if you don't do it on a broader, almost societal level. The first issue is if you can do it right, the way that you're actually doing is you're thinking about how do I actually not just compress five days' worth of meetings into four days, which still shoves all that extra work into the fifth day anyway, right? You actually have to get a lot more efficient, and you have to think about what are more asynchronous ways of working with one another. So that's one of the biggest challenges that I've seen and heard from companies that have tried to do this individually. The other issue is that there are broader expectations that your business partners have of you that make it really challenging. So we've actually, I also happen to lead Slack's own future of work efforts from a task force perspective. And we've wrestled with this quite a bit. And the challenge is doing it across an organization can be really challenging. So for example, it may be easier to think about a product design and engineering organization where you can optimize because they're internally facing how you make the work more efficient and better on a four-day-a-week basis. But you have sales organizations and customer support organizations where your business partners are expecting you because it is the societal expectation to be available five days a week. And in that case, you can end up with these real challenges around thinking, finding ways in which your organization now feels even more bifurcated, the haves and the have-nots. We've done some really interesting stuff within Slack. We actually now have a set of programs that are actually designed really to get at that issue of, how do I get some boundaries around that nine to five? In the book, we talk a lot about uh, team level agreements and concepts like core collaboration hours. So my team, for example, does 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. West, on the West Coast of the U.S. for all of our meetings, for team meetings, for one-on-ones, for sessions that we do with our, our peer organizations. That allows people to, to... not. It's not that we don't occasionally have a meeting that's outside those boundaries, but it's a different expectation. I have to ask somebody Mm. if it's okay instead of assuming that I can just jam more meetings into their calendar. So that was sort of step one. We've also been experimenting and iterating. We actually have a concept called maker hours. um, And sorry, maker weeks. Maker week, uh, the idea is one week a quarter, cancel all of your recurring meetings. And what that does is two things. That week often for a lot of people is their best week of the quarter because they're getting more time for heads down work. But the other thing that you should do with that same time is use it to actually look at the meetings that are on your calendar cleaning up calendars is a really hard task and it's often Mm -hmm. really challenging for people to figure out how to do it you can declare calendar bankruptcy and start over again but then it always atrophies the benefit of something like a maker week is if you do it well you're using it as an opportunity to look at every meeting on your calendar that's recurring and think about does that meeting need to happen every week or can we alternate synchronous and asynchronous for example Does it actually need to have all 20 people that are in it now? You know, this meeting started with eight and all of a sudden it grew and it grew and it grew. Can't we trim it back and let's use the opportunity to do that? And so what we're doing is we're putting a lot of tools in people's hands. And the other thing that works in these programs we found is find a way to do it where you experiment, iterate and grow it. So that maker week concept started out in the product design and engineering team at Slack almost two years ago. They were doing it successfully. We then took it to the broader Slack organization and built it out and really had to think about what's it mean to have that same sort of week happen for our sales and customer success organization. Uh, they're now doing it as of this year also and calling it customer week, slightly different name, but same concept. Yes. It's actually all now, also now used broadly inside of Salesforce. There's about two thirds of the Salesforce population that now has an async week, same concept, once a quarter, cancel your recurring meetings, use it as an opportunity to start finding more ways to do more of your the update process on a set of projects asynchronously. Find a way to re-examine what's on your calendar. And so as you think about this issue of schedule flexibility, it's really important to think about how are we going to learn what works for you? How are you going to iterate and grow uh, the level of improvement that you can put into it?
1: Yeah. And I love that. I think it's very practical. And I love this idea of, you know, taking one week every quarter, for example, in doing that? Because I think one of the things that I've seen and I see every day actually actually, with corporates is the fact that they feel like being in a hamster wheel, right, because they are having one meeting after the other. They're actually attending even meetings at the same time. I don't know how they do it, but of course they come. I, know, I, they- I've, I've heard
0: of a few people doing that where they've got two Zoom windows open. I'm like, there, <laughs> there's, there's this concept called multitasking that doesn't actually work. And if you're doing oh, it to that yeah, extent, sure. you're clearly not paying attention. <laughs>
1: No, and also there is probably another reason. Probably they do it by comply for compliance, right? Just to to make sure in front of someone they are t- attending this meeting. Although of course they can't participate. But this idea of synchronous asynchronous activities, I think, is key in online work. I, I still believe that yeah. is the key. And of course, Slack is such an amazing tool to allow, the especially asynchronous activities, to function properly. I don't think, right, Brian? There is you know, uh, an absolute truth about, you know, flexibility no. and, and working with teams uh, online, right? That's right. In, in
0: fact, part of what, what we've seen is uh, anybody who says they've got this all figured out is um, maybe a little bit self-delusional. Um, the, 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 the process that we're all going through, I think, is one of continuous learning, continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. And, taking a mindset that says um, we're here to, to learn. Uh, the, the phrase we used internally when we started rolling out our own programs at Slack was uh, progress, not perfection, right? Yes. Uh, yes. That this is a continuous learning process that's really important.
1: No, of course not. And I think... Um... What probably might happen in the next two, three, five years is going to be even different than what we are experiencing right now anyway. And one of the, what I really like about your framework, and we'll come back to the framework, the seven steps that you developed. One of those is this experimentation. So keep, you know, testing new things in order to get the right formula for working well with the team. Now, what needs to be changed for leaders and employees to embrace such a different way of working? Because, well, I'll come back to the f- few potential challenges or you know arguments or, or issues that I see every single day with teams. They are trying to transition into the online world, but at the same time, they are not able to do it. So, it is just about the mindset. If and if it is about the mindset, what well, what are the changes that we need to see in the mindset as a mindset? Or there is more. There are more more things that we need to consider as a big behavioral changes here.
0: So, I think there's a there's a starting point which is mindset, and especially from a leadership perspective. The last two years have been the sort of major shock to the system, but in, in part, it's a shock that's a continuation of a bunch of trends that have been happening for decades, right? So I'm, I've been uh, working long enough that uh, my career predates email uh, and the internet in, in a, any kind of major way from a work perspective. And no one would sit, there to, sit here today and say, let's go back to just using you know, telephones as our primary method of communication and collaboration. Just in the same way nobody you know in the 1980s would have said let's go back to using the telegraph those technology changes have been pretty drastic what's happened over the course of the past couple of years is it's been an acceleration of a set of trends the advent of broadband access at home SaaS tools that are very easy for people to use and demographic changes importantly means that you've all of a sudden open all of a sudden open yourself up to new ways of working and what happened at the start of all of this is companies went one of two directions A lot of us just did a retrofit a lot of this was a lift and shift of existing habits and practices that you did in offices and you started doing them at home even that was a relatively major event right when you think about it Um, everybody did uh, made changes that they didn't think were possible the question now is you've had other companies that have gone further and said hey look we're going to take this opportunity to not just retrofit but redesign we're going to start rethinking Mm -hmm. for example how we do onboarding how we do innovation how we do creativity all these other activities that have to happen in order to engineer the business. Right now, the question for a lot of leaders is, which direction are you headed? Are you going to take the the perspective of, I'm going back to the way things always worked to 2019 and before, um, because that's what always worked for me? Or am I going to look at this and say, I actually want to reimagine how work gets done. I'm going to take the best of what's happened over the course of the past two years and combine it with some really good things like access to shared space for team uh, building and team uh, belonging, and bring those two together and redesign going forward. So there's really a question, the key question is, are you looking backwards to the way things used to work? Or is your orientation starting from today, what are we going to do differently going forward? And if you can get people to understand that you really want to take that combination and move forward, then you've got an acceleration of all kinds of potential things that can happen from a good perspective.
1: Yeah, and, and I agree. I think that everything starts from the mindset. Now, what, one potential problem that we have seen, especially in corporate America, in the last, I think, in 2021, yeah. if you remember, when a lot of CEOs from the financial institutions, the large financial institutions, they said, "Oh, now COVID is is essentially over," and they were wrong because we are unfortunately back on track on this. So let's go back to the office because you know we can't build a great, great culture here, you know, by working remotely. So there is, I think, this. Perception across the industry, across countries, that maybe the younger startups, the technology world, is much used to go to flexible work than traditionally businesses, right? So, based on the world, especially I think on the future um, forum, did you notice any different patterns on embracing flexible work from traditional or conservative industries or organizations to the more much modern um, organizations? So
0: there are changes that are required in terms of jobs that are literally required to be physically present and together. But it's interesting when we dig into it by an industry by industry perspective, you see fewer differences than you would expect. In any given industry, you're going to find people that are leaning forward and people that are heading uh, backwards. And the ones that are leaning forward are actually taking this as an opportunity uh, from a talent perspective, which at the end Mm. of the day was what this entire thing is all about. If you ask any every single CEO survey that gets done for the past, not just two years, but past decade, when you ask a, C, a group of CEOs, what's the most important thing on your agenda? Talent is always number one. The pandemic and inflation and supply chain issues move up and down in spots two, three, and four. But talent's always the first thing, right? Yes. Because we all get and understand that attracting top talent and aligning them against your mission and helping them move faster against it is really what makes you successful or not. So what we're seeing in different industries is a competition that's starting to play out. So in financial services, for example, you have had New York-based financial services institutions that have said very publicly, we want everybody back five days a week. You've also had some of those institutions that have backed off of that, right? So J.P. Morgan Chase has actually said, we're moving into a hybrid mode. Yes. We're not going to do five days a week. We're going to allow more of a three-day-a-week model. And the reason why they're doing that is they're seeing competition from other organizations as well. HSBC is taking a much more flexible digital first approach. We talk in the book a lot about Royal Bank of Canada. We actually profiled them, talked to their executive team, laid out how they actually approach this. And that team you know, thought about this from a perspective of, this is an opportunity for us. And this is what we've seen in other, other sectors too. We're no longer constrained by our ability to hire people that will show up to work in Manhattan five days a week. We can now think about a much broader aperture for hiring. And that means that we actually get access not only to more talent, but more diverse talent. Diversity is also a core issue in terms of how people think about this. And if we can do that and retain that talent, then we get competitive advantage. And so we see this in financial services. We see it in the retail sector. We see it in industrial and automotive. You name it, you're gonna find companies within any given industry where leadership is looking forward or looking backwards, and they're gonna compete with one another on that basis.
1: No, I agree. It's definitely a competitive advantage, especially now after all conversation about great resignation, whether we agree or not on the findings of that. But clearly, you know, the the, the ability to have a flexible work, regardless how you describe flexible work, is one of the key elements for people to, to take a decision on either staying or leaving the organization. On this, in particular, how do you think employees need to change in terms of their own personal behaviors about being able to be more flexible? Because, you know, from 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 some perspective, it's, it's you know it sounds easy, right? So you know, well, we're gonna give you the opportunity to work from home, uh, work whenever you want, uh, work in a way that you prefer. But the reality is, people, at least that's my um, my experience, because I do a lot of work with teams, particularly teams. And I still see some some teams that are a little bit reluctant to to work online with flexible teams because they do, probably they don't see the value of that or they still believe, well, it would be nice to go back working together in person because there is more there is a chemistry, there is more enthusiasm, there is a momentum, we can generate better ideas. Do you think it's something that employees can do? Or is it just a matter of leaders changing you know, or leading this change, powerful change across organizations. So in other words, it's just a responsibility of on one side of the table, or there is a responsibility on the other side too?
0: There's definitely a balanced responsibility here. And there's also like a need to understand that in the same way that top-down mandates, the sort of forced, here's the three days a week, you have to be in the office. Th- those, those top-down mandates, not only are they not well-received, they don't typically work terribly well. Partly because, especially when you have an organization that's in more than one floor, let alone more than one building, let alone more than one city, not every, and by the way, multiple functions, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to people, right? Because that's not the way we collaborate. That's not the way we work. And so much is digital anyway. Um, so what the other side that doesn't work either is a complete individual free-for-all, right? If mm. everybody on your team has a very different perspective on this and they're doing different things, that doesn't work either. The great thing is that some form of flexibility in the middle is al- what almost everybody wants. It's back to that you know, 79% of people want flexibility. The vast majority of them want to come together sometime between, somewhere between a couple of days a week and at least once a month for a week uh, to, to do things together. And the answer that we found works most consistently is to try to figure out what your organizational framework is, meaning what are the, what are the purpose, what's the purpose and principles that you've got around flexible work? and we give some examples of this in the book, make sure you've got some guardrails around that from how executives themselves behave as well. But then team level agreements, finding ways for individual teams to figure out what are the habits and norms that work for them. And so for example, we talk about Genentech in the book, bio, a biotech firm that's got R&D people that need to be in the lab some parts of the week. They've got manufacturing organizations, but they've also got sales teams, they've got finance. If you think about it, there's no one size fits all that's gonna work for that organization. So they took a team level agreement approach that started off with executive alignment around what were the sort of boundary conditions that were going to work for them. And then those discrete organizations figured out what's the sort of sub boundaries for our organization that are going to work. And what that does is it you've got to pair that up with manager training, which we can also get into. But there's ways in which you can actually say to teams, here's examples that work for your part of the organization. Well, I'll give you an example. One of the things mm-hmm. we see really often is that product design and engineering teams that are more distributed distributed, are thinking about the week of the month or even the week of the quarter. It's that gathering where you bring everybody together. They may live in more far flung geographies, but you're getting them together for a more intense period of several days of planning, but also meals, of also social uh, time together to sort of build those connections. Whereas sales organizations, more often, it's what's the anchor day of the week, right? The sales leader who says, hey, you know what? Wednesday and Thursday are going to be my days in the office. I'm going to do my staff meeting on Wednesday. I'll do one-on-ones on Thursday. It's not that everybody has to come into the office, but giving people that that really easy, simple set of rules or guidelines is a great way to sort of uh, help people through what otherwise, <laughs> the other uh, the gripe that you've heard and I've heard too is, why am I coming into the office to do Zoom meetings all day? Yeah,
1: yeah. Right? And there was a lot so, of conversation about that.
0: Yeah, so team-level yeah. team agreements are really a great way to do that because organizations have different needs. So that's a, we found that to be probably the best way to find, to find that balance point.
1: The first three steps of your framework that you just described very quickly now, Brian, is about agreeing on purpose and principles, Create these guardrails on behaviors and then norms, how to essentially we want to work together. That's typical, by the way, the approach I use with with teams. So, is when we start working together, normally one of the things, at least I suggest my my clients do, is building the rules of the game, how I call them. So, how we want to play the game together, right? But it sounds like that is actually much more profound than that because. Based on if you, especially if you are a large organization and you really want to become a flexible organization from, from the top to the bottom down, what you're essentially saying, you need to redesign the entire organization. So it's not just one single team and decide, defining their own rules. How do you see this such a major big change going in an organization? Maybe that oh yeah, he's an as much in working online.
0: So I think, I think there's two things to that. One is you do actually have to have the executive conversation. And, and it's a pretty in-depth and pretty gnarly executive conversation. So I actually sit um, uh, in with Slack's team while we were sorting this out. Uh, you would think that it would be easy, but Slack itself was pre-pandemic, a very office-centric culture. Less than 3% of our employees were remote. Um, if you were going to have a meeting, it was in the office. We had I had a, an engineering director out of Denver who worked uh, with me who made 19, no, 23 trips to San Francisco in 2019. Oh, wow. Yeah, mo- most of those to be in the room where it happens, right? If you think about the the Hamilton reference, like there was a, um, if, if you weren't, if you were in a senior executive review of your product or where you're headed and you weren't in the room, he you, you just felt left out. So he would get on a plane and, and make the trip. And the this sort of shift a couple months in for him was spectacular. And he was the first one to internally coin the phrase Slack as our headquarters because it was a major improvement to his, not just quality of life, but feeling like he had, you know, a much more level playing field in terms of opportunity. And that opened people's eyes a bit. But the challenge then was this conversation in the executive suite about what direction are we headed ourselves? And it wasn't just about, like, what's the rules of the game in terms of um, the the principles around, you know, flexibility and even making sure that we actually kept that level playing field, which is important from a diversity perspective in particular, which we can get into but also, if we're going to do that as executives, how do we show up? What's our own set of behaviors going to be like around this? Because if the execs are all showing back up five days a week on the you know, in the C-suite, then the signal is going to be, you need to get back in the office. And so we came up with a set of guardrails uh, from an executive perspective, not more than three days a week in the office. Uh, literally disassembled the C-suite. So people sit on different floors of different buildings at this point in time to try to keep it from feeling like there's this sort of central physical uh, locus of power. And one of the most important ones was thinking about those executive reviews. So think about the past two years, all of your executive reviews that your chief marketing officer, chief product officer have done have been on, you know, video conferencing calls. And there's a big difference between when you think about those reviews happening in a room where that C-level executive probably is sitting at the end of the table and there's a line of people you know, up and down and other people dialed in who can't get a word in edgewise and can't quite tell what's going on in the room and this kind of situation you and I are in now. Those meetings are actually the ones that are often the most important to keep on uh, the sort of uh, video platform because it's a more level playing field. And so mm-hmm. our product reviews, for example, have remained on Zoom. As a matter of fact, the team that does it doesn't even book a conference room for it. And they'll do one-on-ones and staff meetings and other stuff in person, uh, whatever happens to work. But it's those ones where the power dynamic is the biggest that we've had the, the conversation about. And so as people are thinking about this, a lot of this is about how do you think about getting that executive alignment? And not every executive group is going to get there. So the second set of this often is, what parameters are we going to allow teams to have? So we can suggest to people that they want to be in the office. We can say to People that we want people to be in the office three days a week, but if that's just a policy statement, it doesn't work nearly as well as if you can sit there and say, "What's the behind it?" So we're seeing a lot of organizations grapple with this literally this month, right? Thinking through the things we want you to come to the office for is put the weekly staff meeting there, put the one-on-ones there, and and have that be part of it for you know big project kickoffs. But being able to outline six, eight, 10, 12 like. Here are the specific types of events that we want you to come together for is much more helpful to people than saying three days a week. Hmm. Last one is the further extreme of it, which is some organizations are not even fully prepared to go there. But experimentation and iteration really actually is important. And so there are undoubtedly parts of your organization that are actually thinking about this uh, much more progressively and where it's actually potentially even more important. So I'll give you an example financial services company out of the northeast of the U.S. Uh, that happens to have a, you know, it's 150-year-old organization, happens to have a big arm that's actually focused more in the fintech space, right? They're mm-hmm. thinking about next generation products. That team has to be more flexible because they're competing for talent with people who are flexible. And so that's the place that's actually experimenting first with much more flexible ways of working, And often finding those people and getting their habits and then helping translate them to the rest of the organization is a great way to go. But you've got to figure out, you know, internal champions, and you also have to figure out that translation layer. What would that same set of practices look like for people who are doing, uh, who are on the sales organization, as an example? And it's going to be a different set of patterns, but at least you've then got the internal benchmarks for success, not just the external ones.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. It makes absolutely sense. So uh, we have a question from Dave, Dave Mcney. He's, he's asking, can you give a few examples of team-level agreements on your team and how they've changed over time and through iteration? So well, great question. It's what's a great your, question. what's
0: your view? Uh, thanks, Dave. Um, from a team-level agreement perspective, so we started doing this in the early days of, of FutureForm itself. Com- the organization now is a bit over two years old. And our first one was much more um, operationally mechanical in nature. It was things like core collaboration hours. We actually put that one out there pretty early on. Um, we then got into a set of things around communications and boundaries because outside of like core collaboration hours, it's actually really important, especially these days when you think about it, for people to know that they can turn off work, right? That they don't have to monitor notifications from 15 different systems. If I, if I have to watch, you know, email and Slack and, uh, you know, Zoom and five other tools to see if I'm getting a notification coming in 24 by seven, I'm not really going to get much of a break. So what we did is said, you know, what are the issues that are actually going to be the most urgent that we will notify people about off hours that we need them to pay attention to? And importantly, what will we use to do it? Um, And on that one for us, it's a text message. We don't, we're not going to, I'm not going to send you a Slack at nine o'clock at night. If it's really urgent, I'm going to text message you anything else needs to happen off cycle. The other thing that I'll give you one that I've learned personally that we've adopted as a team, which is especially as a leader using scheduled send. Um, I'm one of those leaders that always said, hey, you know, I just work weird hours and I'm going to send you something into the into a team channel or, or an e- email alias when I was at Google, but don't worry about it. I don't need you to pay attention until tomorrow. But well, the will. problem with that is, yeah, but people don't. It, it doesn't work. Brains don't work that way. No, some doesn't teams it doesn't work. And it's 10 o'clock at night, and they're going to have a hard night's sleep because they're thinking about the answer to your question, or they're just going to stay up for the next hour to answer it because they can't stop thinking about it. So I'm a heavy user of scheduled send these days. My team gets a lot of stuff from me that may pop up at nine o'clock in the morning. And yeah, maybe I've worked some odd hours in order to be able to do that, but at least it's not disrupting their, you know, what, what they, when they should be getting some, some rest. We also, by the way, continue to ad- adapt a bunch of things that are less mechanical in nature. We talk a lot as a team, not only about things like roles and responsibilities, uh, but how do we disagree? Uh, because it's important to be able to disagree on, on on different issues and matters, but also how do you make sure that you've got clarity about at the end of the day, who's responsible for making different decisions, even if everybody else disagrees so that they can move forward. So that some of this can start getting much deeper. And last thing that I'd say is we then do a... Um, we have a Monday morning staff meeting, and one of the things that we do every Monday morning is try to pull up one of those norms, one of those elements of our T-Mobile agreement, and talk about it. How are we doing on this? Uh, is this one working for us? What are some recent examples where it's worked and where have we failed? And that kind of ongoing attention uh, helps remind us, uh, if nothing else, but also gets us makes us a little bit better
1: uh, every week. That's great. That's very specific and practical tips. I love that, Brian. And great question, by the way. Dave. Well, one, one, one thing for me, I think, is I'm working right now with the online team. And one thing that uh, actually we notice is the fact that uh, leaders, they need to decide as well. Uh, was what is their decision-making process, especially with online meetings? Because that's slightly different than traditional meetings. Because for the same reason that you said before, Brian is unfortunately the fact that it's so easy to join an online meeting, so a Zoom, call, etc. Allow unfortunately leaders to invite more people, much more people than they are required, and most of yeah. them they are they probably they don't even need to be there, and then you need to have uh, a word about the decision. So I think as well. And I love what you said. is also how we're going to make decisions together. And yeah. that is important when you're doing online because that is, is going to be a huge difference between being super effective and being incredible, wasting all your time. Do you agree with this, yeah. this finding, Brian? Agree, agree.
0: And like we can back it up in a couple of ways too. Uh, transparency is actually at the end of the day the underlying problem with that. So it's not just the making of the decision. And it's not just the leader adding more people in. The problem that's harder often is it's the people that want in. It's the fact that, um, oh, you're having that meeting. I want to be there because I want to hear about it. I want to be involved in it. And so that's often why that eight-person meeting becomes a 20-person meeting is because other people pile their way into it.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and what, what underlies that is a lack of transparency more often than not. So some of that is about who gets to make the decision, but also what decision got made and why did it get made? So one of the biggest things that we all need to work on as organizations is it's not just meeting hygiene. It's being clear about like, this is the decision we're looking to make in this meeting. Here's the background materials. I'll give you a really simple tip. People don't pre-read pre-reads. It just doesn't work. We all kind of get that that doesn't happen. Spend the first five minutes of the meeting asking people to read the document that was shared. One of the tricks that we do on this, Mm. and by the way, Stuart Butterfield, kudos for coming up with this one in some session. Turn your video off. Turn your video back on once you've read it. Um, And that way, whoever's moderating the meeting can watch. And once all the video is back on, great. You've now all read this. Now we can have a discussion. We've just avoided is 15 minutes of presentation, which bluntly none of us need. We could read the document. And you're getting into the heart of the matter. That's one side of it. The other side of it is great. You've now had a discussion. It's been pretty rich. You've come to a decision, communicate the decision and the rationale. And doing that in as public a forum as you possibly can do And there's some things you can't, but like, if there's a team that's waiting for the answer, give them the answer and give them the rationale for why and do it publicly so they see it and they can ask additional questions. And at that point, you've got the transparency that people are looking for. They're going to have more trust in you and you're not going to have them piling into the meeting.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. So we have a question from my good friend, Victoria, and she's asking, great question, have you noticed any geographical differences in terms of countries, regions that are much more open to flexible work compared to others? And also, do you see the need to global relocation of employees based on that too?
0: Yes, we do see this. So we, we actually study specifically US, UK, Germany, France, uh, Japan, and Australia. Um, and there's definitely some like almost quarter-quarter variations that we see, but there's also some outliers. So in the first quarter of this year, for example we saw a pretty sizable growth in people being pressed back into the office in the U S uh, to some degree in Germany, to some degree um, to, to a lesser degree in uh, the UK and France uh, for example, but uh, actually it's U S Germany and Australia. In all those cases, everything went from sort of like 28% of people working full-time in the office to sort of the low to mid thirties, about a 5% increase. And e- each of those cases, people's stress level went up um, a, a pretty sizable amount um Australia sorry uh, France and the UK was flat uh, there wasn't a big increase in people being basically pressed back into the office in the first quarter and stress levels stayed about flat uh not shockingly okay but the big, the big outlier was Japan uh Japan went from roughly 39% of people working now 35% of people working full time in the office to about 50% and uh people's ability to manage stress in Japan dropped basically almost entirely to zero uh so the you can literally sort of plot out country by country and go, if you, if you didn't press people back into the office, their stress levels stayed the same. If they're choosing to come in, they're, they're okay with it. If you're pressing people back in, their stress levels go, go up some. And if everybody's getting pressed back in, like Japan, it, it got a lot harder. And so we can look at those differences and sort of start drawing patterns out of it.
1: Yeah, that's an additional layer of complexity anyway, because we are talking about the company culture and then how the company culture, especially for a global organization, works in, in different regions, different countries.
0: There's another really sizable one. We haven't talked much in this conversation about um, different groups and the perspective different groups have on flexibility. But one thing that's pretty consistent globally is uh, caregivers value flexibility more than non-caregivers, right? And not just people mm. with children, but also you know, people with elderly adults at home. And so we saw this growth from uh, Q4 to Q1. And by the way, next week, we're releasing our Q2 results of you know, working, working mothers in the U.S. in particular, for example, 40 went from 50% of them wanting to work two days a week or less from home to 57%. So most working moms in the U.S. want to work two days a week or less from home. Working dads, not quite as much, but still grew from like 43 to 48. That phenomenon actually varies globally to some degree, but only on gender. So the U S has the greatest difference between working moms and working dads typically followed by the UK. Um, and to some degree that if you, if you kind of think about, um, the U S and some of the challenges that we've got in terms of things like, uh, parental leave, uh, about cultural differences in terms of, uh, who cares for children, uh, infrastructure from a childcare perspective versus continental Europe, you can kind of understand why those differences uh, show up, but this is why you also get back to, you know, you know, companies that are pressing, you know, forced five-day-a-week uh, return measures are actually putting caregivers more at risk. Um, and also, in particular, in the U.S., it's more often women with children.
1: Right. That's a very interesting. I didn't know this. So that's a very interesting finding. Some organizations, they're starting to feel like the collaboration tool are super useful, and I do... By the way, I'm a big fan of Slack and not because you are here, Brian, because I'm using every single day. So so it's an endorsement, but without, without any, any direction, really, because I love it. I think it's the much more useful tool here in collaboration. However, do you see in the future some sort of fati- potential fatigue on people using collaboration tools? Because there might be Um, perceived as, oh, it's like another Zoom now because it's kind of, you know, we get used to tools, right? We get used to and then we want to get a new tool. We want to change the scenario. We want to change the environment. Do you see a potential risk here for, for Slack in terms of product development?
0: I think, there's, I think there's a couple of issues at work here. One of which is any tool is actually to some degree a reflection of the managers and leaders and how they use them, right? So yes, m- my career started off where I would get chained voicemails, seven voicemails in a row to listen to because that was the way someone would communicate with me, right? And that's a pretty horrible experience. <laughs> the, last, the last two years, you know, uh, Zoom uh, calls, uh, the 30-minute video conference has become the hammer for every single nail right? And we're all fatigued, not just because we're tired of looking at our faces, but because our days have been chopped into these 30 minute increments that are nonstop. And so I think the challenge, uh, there's two challenges. One is as leaders figuring out the right approach for the right solution. There are plenty of things that do not require a 30 minute video call. So there's a couple of ways to solve that. One of which is pick up the phone. Um, If I need to talk to you, Andrea, for five minutes, there are plenty of times in which I should just sit there and say, I'm going to Slack you a message and get into a huddle, which is a voice only Slack call, or just pick up the phone and call you and let's talk about it real quick. If you're available, those, those types of just small things thinking about like, do I really need to set up a a video call or can I just do a quick, uh, a quick call this way? The other is make sure you're thinking about asynchronous ways of communicating and collaborating. So sharing content being clear about when you would like a response on it and giving people time to work on it so that they're not sitting totally. there being bombarded by continuous, you know, things that all of a sudden feel like I need to address, you know, the following 1,500 notifications uh, simultaneously. And last one and is... It's very
1: effective, by the way, for a global team because they're also working in a very different time zone. So asynchronous is perfect. Exactly.
0: Right? And the more distributed your team, the more clarity you need on that front.
1: Okay, cool. So let's try to pick a very quick question from Laila. I think she's referring, so Laila Ali, she's referring back to my point about the behavior of employees. She's asking a very simple question. Let's see whether we have a simple answer. She's asking, what if within the team, there is someone that is love using, you know, online tools, online meetings, and someone that is not responding, is there, but is not intervening, is not engaging, et cetera. What sort of influence you can do as a leader in order to align everyone? Which is so it's not maybe so easy as we thought as a question. What's, what's your view? Yeah, it? it's,
0: not, it's, not, it's not always that easy, and I do think a lot of this is like it depends on if you're uh, a peer of that person or if you're the manager of that person. So if you're a mm. peer of that person, try just talking to them about it, doing outreach, and showing them. They, they, maybe the kind of thing where they just need to help. They need help in understanding how the tool works, or they need good examples of why they should use it in the first place. As a manager, I think part of your job is to actually figure out what are the right tools for the right processes within your team and setting expectations and norms, right? It is back to saying, look, this is the way the team operates. And I expect people on this team to operate within these boundaries of this is how we run meetings. This is how we communicate. This is how, you know, we expect response time within a business day or two business days on the following issues. And, And as a leader, that is part of your job in doing it. So influencing that leader and also trying to, if nothing else, asking that leader what expectations should we have as a team on this maybe a good way to start
1: so what is the final tip Brian that you want to share with the audience about flexible work there's something maybe I didn't ask you that you think is important to address to the audience
0: I think the main thing to think of, to keep in mind is back to no one has all the answers here ongoing experimentation, iteration finding what works and coming at this with an open mindset is really important so the last thing that I would say is the the leaders that are most successful in this are the ones that say, I don't have all the answers. It's often really hard for senior executives. I've been a CEO myself. You've got to balance out both the fact that you've got the vision, the aspiration, where you want the company to go, but you're inviting your team to help you solve the problems of how you get there. And that gets you so much further than the top-down mandates, but you've got to come up at that with the, the mindset of, we're here to solve this together.
1: Yeah, and we were chatting a little bit earlier about my, my latest post about, you know, the, the, what's going okay. on in the CEO world and the complexity is increasing and we have to stop thinking that they have all the answers that we're looking for. Actually, let's try to help them because the complexity and uncertainty that they are, they are they are living right now, is crazy. So it's easy maybe for employees thinking, well, you know, they get a very good pay, so they should have all the answers. It doesn't work in that way. No, it doesn't. But I, it doesn't. So So, and by the way, guys, I really recommend reading Brian's book. But Brian, would you like to say maybe a bit more about where people should go to find out more about the book or maybe if they want to make a contact with you?
0: The easiest two things. Uh, Number one, uh, futureforum.com gets you to all of our research, our blog posts. There's a link there to how the future works, the book itself, with links uh, around the globe of places you can buy the book. And right on LinkedIn, uh, look me up, uh, follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see plenty of content uh, coming out of me and the team. Just today, matter of fact, we launched our newsletter uh, from the Future Forum team. So it's a great opportunity okay, cool. to start
1: following us. Cool, and I see some comments say from, for example, from Linda, thank you very much, really insightful. So I'm great that you guys spend spent some time with me and Brian, and uh, I know it's valuable and we really appreciate that. Thank awesome. you so much, Brian, it's been such a fun conversation.
0: Andrea, thank you. Appreciate
1: it. It's been great. As this is a very interesting topic, I really would like to hear from you, understanding what you think about this. So, please send me any comments either uh, on LinkedIn or you can send me via email at Andrea at AndreaPetroni.com. You can find anyway these links on the show notes. And um, and by the way, if you like what we shared, I strongly recommend that you to leave a review because you know, as a podcaster, we live. We reviews so the only way for our episode and our podcast to grow is by adding positive reviews so I appreciate that and also sharing with your friends and colleagues if you think that might be interesting and final note, I normally um, summarize the findings of each episode even the ones with the guests uh, on my website and I write every Thursday a very interesting uh, short summary about what we share so if you don't want to miss that you prefer uh, reading, I strongly recommend going to my website www.andreapetrone.com slash blog. You can subscribe there. I'm not sending any sales thing, it's just big good insights of my experience with the podcast and my work with clients. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode and I look forward to seeing you next time.